me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We've been working our way through this chapter and answering uh, a question that Paul puts forward at the beginning of the chapter. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's the question that sort of sets the agenda for the chapter. And Paul's answer uh, in simple form is straightforward. May it never be. I mean, we, we should not continue in sin. And then he's going to unpack for us reasons why. The first of which is what we've been seeing in verses 1 through 7 is that we have died to sin. If we are joined to Christ, in Christ, then we have died to sin. It should not be the ruling power in our lives because of our union with Jesus Christ and his death. And, and he makes that case, I think, pretty clearly for us. But it's not the complete picture. It's part of the picture. There's actually two aspects to this that we need to understand. The dead to sin is one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is being alive to God. So it's not just that our stance towards sin has been changed by the fact that we're joined to Christ and have died to sin, we also are supposed to walk in newness of life. There's something that's to replace the old manner of life, the new life in Christ. And he's going to unfold that. He's already pointed to it, but he's going to really sort of open up that topic in verses 8 through 11, which I'd like to read for us now, because this is where we'll be putting our attention this morning. Romans chapter 6, begin verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ." So Paul's continuing uh, the, the same basic argument. I think that's part of the reason why verse 8 starts with now. And what he does is in verse 8, he sort of makes the statement of the point. We believe that we shall also live with him. And then in 9 and 10, he gives us the basis for that. He explains why we can have that confidence. And then in verse 11, he draws out the application or implication of it for us, that we should live a certain way. All of this is wrapped up in our faith, that we have faith in Christ, and it has these kinds of ramifications for us. Right? And, and that's why I want us to see what the text is saying. In verse 8, Here's, I think, the point that Paul's making. Our faith includes belief in resurrection life. If we actually are joined to Christ, we have trusted in Christ, because that's the only way we could ever be justified and united to Christ is by faith. The faith that we express doesn't just look backward to the cross. It actually also looks forward to the resurrection. It, it incorporates all of that. And that's his point in verse 8. Notice the condition that he lays out at the beginning of verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ. And so, so whenever you see it, if this is true, then something else is true. That's a conditional statement. In this case, Paul uses the language in a way 
that the condition is assumed to be true. If we have died with Christ, and we have, right? Because he's talking to the believers who've identified with Christ through faith and actually have been joined to God's people by the public profession of faith and baptism. So he's talking to them, and he's not doubting. He's not going, well, if we've died, and I'm not so sure about you. He's actually going, if we've died, and it's true that we have. One way you could translate, and some of you may have them, is since we died with him. All right, that's really the point of it. It's founded on the keys that he's already mentioned of union with Christ. Look at verse 6 again. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So when we were crucified with him, we've died with him. That's our union with Christ. His death, we are joined to his death so that it could be said that we have died to sin. And in fact, it's for those, verse 4, look at notice it says there, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So as I said last week, what Paul's doing is describing their conversion in terms of how that's identified. Right? And, and this, is, this is difficult for us because we've separated the expression of faith in Christ with the public testimony of that faith, but the New Testament didn't. Someone trusted in Christ, they were baptized. Remember the day of Pentecost? Immediately, they submitted to baptism in the name of Christ because that was their open declaration that Christ was now their Lord. It wasn't the thing that saved them. Faith was what saved them. And we know that because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he came preaching the gospel, not baptizing. Right? So he didn't come to baptize people as the way of seeing them saved. He came to preach the gospel and they responded to the gospel. But I believe based on the way the scriptures unfold, the Great Commission, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all throughout the book of Acts, someone repents and believes they are baptized. That the, the, the church in Acts would not have accepted as a Christian, someone who refused to be baptized. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like saying, I want to be married to someone, but I don't, want to, I don't want to wear a ring, I don't want to live in the same house, I don't want to have any association. I mean, in my heart, I'm married. Right? And what we've, we've tended to do is separate those out in a way that just doesn't match the landscape of the Scripture. If someone actually said, I recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. I've confessed Him with my mouth that Christ is Lord. I've believed in my heart that God raised Him from the dead. The immediate response of that was to identify with Christ through baptism. To be incorporated into the body of believers as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the world in which we live in has, has separated out following Christ from believing in Christ. We, we've reduced it to just like a, you know, we just sort of added Jesus to our lives instead of actually we've bowed the knee to Christ and become a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So when verse 4 talks about that being buried with him in baptism and death, it is that, that their baptism was the testimony of their identification with Christ and, in fact, was the visible symbol of the spiritual reality that happened that the Spirit places believers into the body of Christ. Those correspond to each other. All right, so, so when he says, if we have died with him, he's confident because they, they have trusted in Christ and identified with Christ, and so that profession and their union means that they have died to Christ or died to sin because of their relationship with Christ. So if that's true, and it is, verse 8, notice the second part in verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him. This is their confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I take the shall also live with him to be pointing toward the future resurrection. Right? He's using a future tense. If, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And so I think the primary focus is their confidence in the resurrection. That, that, that what Christ did for them and has promised to them means they will enjoy the kind of resurrection that Christ has. We'll be conformed, as Philippians 3 says, to the glory of his resurrection. All right, there's, there's that hope out in front. But what, what we don't want to do is take that and move it so much out to the future that it has no effect or impact on the present. Why is it that they can be certain of a future resurrection? That they will live with him? It's because they actually already have life. Right? Regeneration is the impartation of spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. It's the new birth. God gives them a life that's described as eternal life. It becomes the beginning of the process that will be culminated at the resurrection. That will complete it. The glorification of believers will happen. That's why he can say at the end of verse 4, so we too might walk in newness of life. Right now, we're walking in newness of life because we've been made alive spiritually, but all of that is looking out to the resurrection, the promise when we will actually be raised with Christ and live with him completely conformed to his. And, and what we, again, this probably is something we've got to challenge ourselves with because I think the, the modern tendency is either to ignore or minimize both the significance of Christ's resurrection and of our future resurrection when it comes to day-to-day living. Right? The focus tends to be, you know, what's the, what's the gospel? Christ died. Christ died for me. Christ died for me. Christ died for me. It's absolutely true. And, and often when we say that, we, if we understand the scriptures, we know that that's actually just a shorthand way of saying the whole thing. Right? His life of obedience, his death as a sacrifice, his resurrection, his present intercession. Right? Because none of those things should be separated out from each other. I mean, we're saved by Christ. 
And all of those are a part of the total package. You can't just pick one part of it and go, oh, it's only his death that saves me. Or it was only his life that saved me. Or only his resurrection that saved me. Or only his intercession that saves me. Or only his return that saves me. Because it's not those works independently. It's those things all anchored in Christ and who he is and what he did. But we have a tendency because... I think we've allowed ourselves to be squeezed into uh, a this world kind of mindset when we present the gospel. Because if people are, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, if people are going to buy a product in our day, we have to show them the immediate benefits of it. I mean, because if you know someone someone comes up to you and says, "Hey, I want, I want you to buy something," and, and you say, "Well, you know, what will it do for me?" Well, someday you'll get a benefit out of it. You just, you just take my word, someday it'll, it'll work out. We'd be like, eh, you know, you get to show me something right now. And, and so the tendency has been to take the gospel and make it an immediate remedy for immediate problems. All right? And, and some of those are true. I mean, I need forgiveness now. Right? I mean, there's no doubt about that. So I'm not against that. But all of a sudden it becomes immediate remedies for my temporal problems. And I try to appeal to the felt needs of sinners and even of Christians to show them how relevant this is and how much this touches down on life. And the more we do that, the more we actually start to minimize that the gospel is actually the answer for death. I mean, Jesus, Hebrews 2 says, came to, he was made of flesh and blood like us so that he might destroy the power of him who held us captive by the fear of death. He died for our sins, not just because we needed to be forgiven of them in a psychological way, but because we are under a sentence of death. The wages of sin is death. Right? I certainly need to, I, I, I need to have a sense that I'm forgiven, that I'm reconciled. All that. I'm not trying to discount that. I'm just trying to say, if all we do is turn it into a psychological remedy for a feeling that we have, we're missing the kind of eternal perspective in the Scriptures that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we were in fellowship with God and then we were cut off from God. And if we remain cut off from God, we would be cut off from Him forever because of death. And the answer to that is found in the resurrection. Christ has conquered death. And so when someone comes to me and tells me the gospel, they're addressing my real needs as the scripture presents them. I am alienated from God and I need to be reconciled to God. Right? I am dead in my trespasses and sins and I need to be made alive. I have a day of accounting to God and I need an advocate. And an answer. 
the grave still lies ahead of me. And its sting has not yet been removed, 1 Corinthians 15. It is not until after the resurrection that the stinger is gone. Right? And anyone who's lost someone that you care about knows that. I mean, you can't just like whistle it away. Grief is real. The pain hits. The answer has been guaranteed, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. Right? There's coming a day when the resurrection will finally solve that. That's in the future. And we live in light of that. We live with our eyes toward that. And that's why when we confess Christ, our confession is tied to his resurrection. We believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. Why? Because that's the answer to conquer death. Right? That's the answer. Christ defeated death. And we believe that. We believe that about him. That's why Paul could say, and I know it was partly rhetorical strategy, but he wasn't lying when he did this. He finds himself before the council, and it's divided between Pharisees and Sadducees, and they disagree about the resurrection. And so Paul shrewdly plays a rhetorical card to cause conflict and chaos among them, And you know what the card is? I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection. Okay, he's not lying. He's saying, here's the issue. You think Jesus is dead. I'm telling you he's alive. But he doesn't just say, I'm here on the basis of a resurrection. He says, I'm here because of the hope of the resurrection. I stand here believing that God is going to raise from the dead those who've trusted in Christ. That's the very reason I'm here. That's his summary of the gospel. The hope of the resurrection. Right? That's, that's at the heart of it. And sometimes we can talk about the gospel as if the resurrection is just a postscript. Oh yeah, he rose from the dead too. And it, and it can't be that. It, it's, it's at the very heart of it. And so when we believe the gospel, we believe that we shall also be alive with him. Right? That's the promise he's making to us. And we're believing it. And Christ's resurrection shapes our view of the future I look toward the future, and I I can't see any of this stuff in between what's going to happen. I wish I could at times. Obviously, there's other things I'm glad I don't know about. All right, but I can't can't tell what's going to happen between this day and out here. But here's, here's what I know. There's the day coming. Okay, Christ is going to return and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the earth and be with Him. And that is supposed to shape every day from the now until then. 
And it's shaped by the fact that I believe it. Right? We believe we shall also live with him. It is the exercise of our faith, which is confidence in the promise of God that shapes how I live in this life. And that's what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? At the verse I quoted down there, he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? If we believe this, we also believe these things. He anchors it in their knowledge of and faith in the gospel as revealed to us in the scriptures. We're chapter 6. Jump over to chapter 8. I don't mind going over chapter 8 because by the time we get there, you won't remember what I said anyway. All right? You laughed a little too quickly at that. Look at chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. He's talking about the groaning of creation because of the curse that's the result of sin. And notice in verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Okay, that's the future resurrection. Notice now verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? You understand what he's saying there, right? We we were saved in hope that, that there's coming a redemption of our bodies. So we're saved in hope of what God is going to do. That's another way of saying we believe that we shall also live with him in chapter six, right? We're saved in hope about what God is going to do, then notice verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. All right, so so here it is, you know, November 11th, no, November 11th, November 6th, 2022, all right, and somewhere out there is going to be fulfillment of this promise, we'll live with him, the redemption of our bodies. So here's what should be happening now. Because of that hope, we are with perseverance eagerly waiting for it. Right? That's that's controlling our lives. We are moving in that direction in anticipation of God fulfilling His promise. The future is controlling our present. Because we believe we shall also live with him. Go back to chapter 6, please. All right, so there's the, 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 the sort of statement of the truth, right? That, that we will live with Christ is why we should not continue in sin. And then in verses 9 and 10, he is going to uh, support that. You can see the connection between 9 and 10 because uh, I doubt... Uh, I don't. I didn't check every English translation, but New American Standard is a comma, then verse 9, right? So it's the same sentence. The first word of verse 9, knowing that Christ, is actually modifying the we believe. And, and it could be translated this way, because we know, right? It has a causal relationship. We believe this, Because we know something, 
right? That the faith that they exercised is grounded in knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. All right, and, and this is this is, I think, important for us to remember. Right? Faith, uh, I'll give you, I'll give you the uh, not crusty, but sort of like the technical definition of it, right? I learned a long, long time ago in seminary. Faith, right? Faith is the knowledge of assent or agreement to an unreserved trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. So it involves our knowledge and our affections, our assent or agreement to it, our heart is inclined toward it, and an element of our will unreserved trust in. Okay, Genuine biblical faith involves the whole person. It's not just an intellectual thing. It actually is a commitment thing too. All right? And, and here's what we need to recognize, right, is that Probably the first part, knowledge of, and the last part, unresolved trust in, uh, they don't get denied, right? But the, there's a tendency at times to reduce faith to a feeling. I mean, I just, you know, God's always been there. I mean, I've just always felt this way, right? Faith just becomes sort of an emotion, a feeling toward God, and, and you can have people say that who would actually, uh, this is not the nicest way to say it, but would flunk the exam on what the knowledge is. Right? If it's a knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, and you ask them, who's Jesus? And, and they have Jesus at the same level as some other religious leader. He was a good man and a great teacher. That kind of faith won't save them. All right? Because it has to be knowledge of the person and work of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. And, And so against the tendency to turn faith into sort of spiritual feeling or experience, we need to see how clearly the Scriptures ties it to knowing something. Right? We believe knowing that Christ died and was raised from the dead. Right? Their faith was not a feeling. It was not a sentiment. It wasn't, it wasn't some mystical experience. It was actually a response to the truth of God, right? So, so think about it this way. Faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right? So faith, if it's real faith in the scriptures, is a response to God's truth. It's truth that is received. It's truth that's accepted, that's believed. It's truth that's actually acted on, unreserved trust in. It's not just a fuzzy thing. 
That's why sometimes, I mean, I understand what people say when they just say, well, they're a community of faith, and we're a community of faith, and, and all peoples of faith. And the tendency then is to reduce faith to just sort of religious sentiment. Again, this could sound stark, but one of those faiths is different than the rest of those faiths. Because the biblical kind of faith is a faith that knows what the Scriptures say about Jesus and has accepted them. Right? And so someone might say, well, I'm a person of faith. And what they mean by that is they have things they believe. And, and if that's all they mean, I'd say, yeah, yeah, we all, actually, there are no non-people of faith. Every human is expressing some kind of faith. They're operating by some set of principles that they've adopted. But when we're talking about the faith, we're talking about people having accepted what the Scriptures say about Jesus, who He is, and what He did. And that connection, we believe knowing something, is crucial to understand. Again, just keep, keep your place marked here, but let me ask you to jump to Ephesians chapter 1, because I think this passage, this verse helps show uh, my point uh, clearly. Ephesians chapter 1, and look at verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, that's Christ, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel or good news of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So here, look at Paul tying, uh, really, a bunch of the things that I've just been saying, right? So after listening to the message of truth, okay, so there's a message of truth that's tied to their faith. And having believed that, right, you have received the Holy Spirit as the pledge of your inheritance, <laughs> right? You heard the message, you believed the message, and that message includes the promise of what God's going to do in the future, right? The inheritance that's ahead because of the work of God. That's, that's the framework that the Scriptures build out everywhere. Faith is a response and re to and reception of the truth about Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures. And don't think, don't reduce that to like two sentences, right? It's a big unpacking of all the Bible says about who Jesus is and, and how that stands in relationship to God and your sin and, and what the consequences of that, all of it. And when I, when I say Christ died for our sins, I have to understand a whole lot of stuff to get that, right? That there's a God against whom I'm sinned, that I'm a sinner accountable to him, that the need for his death is the judgment of God against my sin. All of that, right, is the content of what we believe because we know these things to be true. Our faith, if I could put it this way, is based on the facts of Christ life, death, and resurrection. 
It doesn't exclude facts. It's grounded on those facts. These are historical realities. They happened in time and space. It is something that we recognize and accept the message of God about and embrace it by faith. Back to Romans chapter 6. All right, so our faith includes belief in the resurrection. Our faith is based on the fact of Christ's victory over sin and death. And that's what 9, eight, uh, nine and 10 are doing. First in verse 9, Christ's resurrection is irreversible and he is immortal. I right, notice the phrase in verse 9, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. That is focusing on the fact that Christ's resurrection was a genuine resurrection. Right? And, and at least one part of the distinction there would be from those resurrections, we tend to talk about them in the Bible, that actually were, we could use a word like revivification. Right? Lazarus came out of the tomb... He was dead. He came back out of the tomb alive. But you know where he ended back up? Someday he ended up back in the tomb. When Jesus raised the widow of Cain's son, he was dead. And Jesus raised him to life. But you know what happened to that young man? One day he died. When Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, she was dead, and he took her by the hand and raised her up. But one day she was going to die again. When Jesus came out of that tomb, he is never going back. He raised, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. That's the resurrection. And someday, when this body, if Jesus doesn't come back before it's laid in the grave, it will be raised never to die again. Death will have no hold, no claim, just like it has no hold or no claim over Jesus. He has raised from, right, risen from the dead, and that resurrection is irreversible. That's the point of it is never, is never to die again. Then look at the last part of verse 9, because this, this can be striking for us, right? Death no longer is master over him. How was death a master over Jesus? Right? That, 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 that might you know, sit a little uncomfortable for us. But I think what Paul is doing here is picking up the language of chapter 5 that we've already seen. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. And, and he's not saying death stopped reigning at Moses. He was actually talking about the giving of the law between Adam and Moses. Death reigned even when the law wasn't here. Death reigned. Okay, so death is described as ruling over humanity because of sin. Look down to verse 21. Even so that as sin reigned in death, so grace 
would reign through righteousness to eternal life. So again, the language of reigning or ruling and the word master there is really Lord. Right? Everybody born as the descendant of Adam in this world has death over them. Right? And, and this is the thing we have to think carefully about, but so did Jesus. Right? He died. He, he wouldn't have lived forever because he became one with us in our humanity except for our sin, but humanity was under the groaning of the curse. We, we'd say sometimes he experienced the sinless infirmities of human existence, right? Because as God, he was never tired. He was never hungry. He couldn't die. He took to himself a human nature, and as a human, he was living in the realm where death reigned. Right? That's the whole point of five was saying, in Adam, death reigned. Sin reigned through death. So Jesus entered that realm, if I could, this is sort of like picturesque way to say it, right? He entered that realm and then conquered it. He died. And when he died, he defeated death. And he rose again, and he no longer lives under that realm. He has actually, for us, created an an entire new realm in which we can live. So grace can reign through righteousness to eternal life. The old realm where death was master, Jesus entered and submitted himself obediently even to the point of death, so that he, through death, could destroy the power of death. And he's no longer subject to death. He cannot die. He has broken its power. I and mean, we sing this every Easter. Probably, it's one of those songs that probably gets unfortunately tied just to Easter, right? But Christ rose. Right? Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. That's what this is saying. Sometime early Sunday morning, death thought it had Jesus captured, and he ripped those bars away. He rose from the up from the grave, he arose with a mighty conquest of his foes. That's what this text is saying. Jesus' death conquered death. His resurrection was irreversible, and he has become immortal. There is no death for him anymore. Now look at verse 10, because Paul again uses language that could maybe shock our system a little bit, right? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. In what sense did Jesus die to sin? Okay, Here's what we can say it definitely does not mean. It does not mean that he was sinning and stopped sinning. Right? Because it doesn't actually mean that for us. Because that's the thing that sometimes troubles interpreters. It says, we've died to sin. How can it be saying, we've, I mean, we're sinners and we've died to sin? If it says Jesus died to sin, does that mean he was a sinner? No. 
Because when it says we died to sin, does it mean we've stopped sinning? No, it doesn't. The point isn't we were sinners and we stopped sinning, so no, that must mean Jesus was a sinner and he stopped sinning. It doesn't mean that about us. It means we lived in the realm where sin ruled. And our lives were lived according to that order. Right? And we died to it. So we're no longer, sin is not our master. We're not under this rule. Our relationship to sin is completely broken as the authority over our lives. And I think what it's saying about Jesus is, is that because he took the penalty of sin in death, he actually has, sin has no claim on him. Not even, not even when ascribed to him, right? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Sin has no reference to him any longer. Right? Jesus completely conquered it. The debt was paid. Jesus is not still in heaven paying debt to sin. Right? It's not, it's not that Jesus is going in the on, oh, there's another sin. I got to pay for that one. Oh, there's another one. I got to pay for that. It's not like he's got an open tab and everybody who sins, he just keeps paying it. No, it was a definitive death. That's why I look at the language of the text. Once for all, right? That's what it says there. He died to sin once for all. He completely took the penalty the death had, uh, the penalty the sin had in death, and he severed the tie. If you're in the realm of in Christ, there's no claim there. There's no debt there. There's no guilt there. There's no authority there. Right? You are not partly in Christ and partly in Adam because Christ is not partly paying this thing and partly out of it. It's done. He died. He conquered death completely. He defeated sin completely. The life that he lives now is the life of resurrection, glorified existence. I, I, I alluded to Philippians 3.20, right? We're looking toward heaven where our citizenship is from which Christ will come and conform us to the glory of his body. Right? He's alive today. I mean, don't, don't be... Uh, I mean, this could... I, don't, I really didn't want to play in this side route, so I'm not even going to really do it. But make sure when you think about Jesus... You don't think of him as some disembodied spirit. Don't think of him now as not human. He didn't abandon his humanity. He took to himself a human nature and he is still Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, with a resurrected, glorified body who one day will come from heaven and we will look upon Him. In fact, Israel will look upon Him whom they've pierced and mourned for Him. Jesus didn't stop being human when He returned to heaven. 
He was glorified in the resurrection. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. That is the first one which we will enjoy and be like him. We will be conformed to his glory. We need to recognize that Jesus lives right now as the perfect God-man, and he will be the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And when he sits on the throne of David, he will be the mediator of God's rule over all of human existence. He is the man for whom all creation was made. He's the glory of God expressed in the image of God that we were intended to be. He's perfectly that. We'll be conformed to him. We'll be made like him. We'll see him as he is. He's living to God in that resurrection because he has conquered sin and death in that way. So look at what the ramification of that should be in verse 11. Even so, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I say the, the conclusion of it is because those words, even so, the command here, and this is actually, I mean, technically, I think it's the second command in the book of Romans. The first one is let God be true. It's sort of like a hortatory command. This is actually the first command that's directed toward believers. Right? Consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, because he's starting to talk about the ramifications of the gospel. And this is grounded, right? It's grounded in what God has done for us. Even so. So, and this is really crucial. Here's what Christ did. He died and rose again. He has given you his righteousness. He has made you alive. You have are to walk in newness of life because of what he's done. So here's your response. All right? So it's not in any way, this is the way you can be right with God. This is the way you can save yourself. This is the way you can rescue yourself. Not at all. It is, here's what God has done for you. Here's what the appropriate response to that is. Even so, all right, look what he did. In this way, think about yourselves, all right? And the command here uh, is a command. So it's a moral obligation, something we're to be active about. And here's, uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm going a little slowly because there's been a lot, I think, in terms of understanding how you grow as a Christian, there have been times where people come to this verse and they sort of deflect off of it into bad pathways, Right? And, and here's one key way to keep on the right pathway. Right? Considering does not make this true. It is actually the outgrowth of it being true. Right? I, I don't, I am, if I'm in Christ, I am dead to sin. I am alive to God. Me considering it doesn't make it so. Right? And sometimes people tell you, here's what you gotta do. You've gotta do something, and then you will be dead to sin and alive to God. Well, that, that thing would be you believe in Christ. But if you've died with Him, 
then this is actually true of you. So it doesn't make it true because you think it. It is true. That's why you should think it. Right? You should recognize it. You should confess it in your heart that this is actually what God has done for you. And in fact, it's a present tense command, so it should be the habitual pattern of your life. You are always recognizing that this is true. If you're in Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. It should be the operating principle of your life that because I'm in Christ, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. That's, that's the standard operating reality for a believer. And notice the combo that's in this text. It says to be dead to sin and alive to God. The old life is gone. Dead to sin. Verse 6, you were crucified with Christ so the body of sin might be destroyed. The new life has begun. You've been baptized with him into his death so you might walk in newness, raised to walk in newness of life. I mean, the out with the old, in with the new. That's the pattern. Ephesians 4.22, put off the old man, which is being corrupted according to the deceitful lust. 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3.9, put away lying because you've put off the old man. And verse 10, you've put on the new man. Right? This is the way it is for those who are in Christ. The old is gone. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. This is what God does for those who trust in Jesus Christ. He makes them new. And that should be the way that they think about life, about themselves. It, it actually should be that our faith frames the focus of our lives. That's what verse 11 is saying. Our faith frames the way we look at life. And, and we do so in an active way. The core of it, verse 11, like he's been doing all the way through 5.12 to now, is tying it to Jesus Christ. Notice verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? That's a big, big concept for Paul. Over 150 times in his letters, he talks about being in Christ or in Christ Jesus. Because what he's talking about is, is what, what has happened for believers, right? When, when they hear the message of Christ and they receive it, they trust in Christ, they are joined to Christ, right? So Christ's death, they've died with him. They've raised with him because they are in Christ. And it's in Christ that all of this is found. And so it's the way in which we should frame out the focus of our lives. Now, here, here's, I think, this, I think it's, this is really important. Right? And, and hopefully, sometimes I like to try and draw things out. And, and, and here's the way I look at it. All right, so uh, in the middle, right here, all right, is that statement, we believe. We believe. That's our faith. We believe we shall also live with him. He looked backward to what Christ did, knowing that the, Christ, the death that Christ died to sin, he will never die again. Death is no master. Right? So, so you're looking back 
to the facts of who Christ is and what Christ did, and those are received by faith. And if they're received by faith, it's not just the backward look at that reality of wonderful Christ-centered gospel truth, but it also frames the way I look at everything else. So if I've really believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's because I know who Jesus is and what he did and what that means for me. I am now dead to sin and alive to God, so I should be living my life from that frame of focus. Sin is not my master. God is my master through Christ. My life is not to be lived for sin. It's to be lived for God. The old things have passed away. Right? I am dead to sin, alive to God. And that's what he calls on us to do. It is not a passivity, and we'll see this, Lord willing, next week. No, not next week, two weeks. Uh, when he says, do not let sin reign. So it's not like I, I just like, wee, I'm dead to sin, alive to God. No, I actually have to fight a fight. But the first step, right? The first step of that fight is to understand what God has done for me through Christ. That Christ's death and resurrection have severed the obligation in my life to sin. I have no obligation to it. I don't have to obey it. I have been joined to Christ. And so I've been made alive to God. There's where my obligation is. So if I'm going to consider this, let me just close by challenging us. I think that means we have to constantly be finding and feeding on Christ-centered, life-giving truth. Right? If I'm going to have my frame of my focus the right way, then I have to be feeding it with the truth of God. I won't be thinking right if I don't have the right thoughts. And the right thoughts will only come from the truth of God. I have to be shaped by what God has said about everything, really, but particularly about what God has done for me through Christ. I should rehearse it to myself constantly. Right? I should be speaking God's truth to my own heart. I should be saying to my soul, look what God has done for you. Why do you want to move back into that neighborhood? Why do you want to live under that horrible master? You've been set free. I need to preach that to myself, talk to myself, tell myself the truth of God. I need to sing it like we've done. I need to sing it when I'm all by myself. Some of us, that's the best time for us to sing, right? I need to let the truth of God be woven in this wonderful gift of music so that it integrates into the affections of my life. Because sometimes music makes the truth sing in a way that captures our heart. And what we want is our heart to be captured. It's gone. This is the way to live. This is the way to live. And you know, one of the ways you can help is share the truth with other people. Talk about it. With others, let them know the wonder of it. Not just in witnessing, but with each other. 
as believers talking about what Christ has done for us. Line up our thinking with this truth. Resolve each day to live it out because it takes a commitment. Consider, obey that, consider. Are you going to live for God in the life that he's purchased for you through the blood of his son? Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for sending your son so that we could live and we might have life and we might have it abundantly. We are grateful that we have tasted of that life. We enjoy it now and we long for the day when it will be full and complete. There'll be no drag in us because of the remnants of sin. There'll be no draining of our joy by the afflictions of this world. There'll be no resistance to our praise by the remnant of our, our selfishness. We'll see Christ and be captured with joy and love and praise for Him. May that increasingly be true of us, that we are thinking of ourselves as dead to sin and alive to you because of what Christ has done and because we're in Christ. At the center of that, Lord, is us seeing and appreciating, treasuring and valuing what our Savior did in his death and resurrection. So please help us to worship him, not just with our lips now as we sing, but with a heart that is captivated by these truths. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.